our position before a God who is perfectly balanced, full of grace and truth. Amen? It's also a blessing to have so many talented people in our church. I got a call uh, from Combe Street uh, last week, and they said, Hey, Keith, can you come preach for us? And I said, Yes. And he said, Good, if you'll bring Jacob. <laughs> so I immediately got on the phone and, and started begging Jacob to go with me. Well, we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Acts. I hope you have a worship outline. Everybody got one? Everybody get a worship outline? Great. If you don't have one, raise your hand and the boys will bring one to you. Patsy doesn't have one. Lou, get her one. And we'll break into our sermon. All right, up on the front row, we got three delinquents. Four, five. Lou, give five to your sister and see if she can pass them on. All right. We're asking ourselves, can it happen again? Can 120 or 150 le or less Christians change the world? Absolutely turn it upside down, Jeremiah, and bring Christ to the known world. I think we can. I think we can do it again. Before I go on any further, I want to ask you to please keep in your prayers. Don's mom is having some health issues. Don, raise your hand. Don's mom is having some health issues. If you would, write it on the back of that sheet to pray for Don's mom this week uh, as she deals with some health issues. So we're asking, can we do it again? Can we turn the world upside down? Can we change our culture by looking at acts and imitating what they've done? This morning our sermon is called Slow Drift. Before we get into it, let's just do a little bit of review. It's been two weeks since I've spoken to you about the book of Acts, so let's just go through uh, what we've learned so far. In the book of Acts, we see the church being more of a posse than a fortress, right? They're not a fortress church trying to keep people out. They're a posse that goes out and, and tries to put evil right and make things right and change the world and bring them into the kingdom of God. We look and should look more like a posse than we do a fortress. And we're trying to be a church of transparency. We see that when they had problems in the church, they were open and honest with it and they dealt with it on an open basis. We saw that they are people of courage. When they suffered, when they were beat for being Christian, they rejoiced because they were worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. We also studied that we're in an upside-down kingdom, right? The greatest servants in this kingdom are the greatest. They're at the bottom, but they're really the best and of our leaders. Whoever is the greatest servant is your leader. And then we looked at acknowledging divine appointments, seeing every opportunity in our life. When things go wrong and are not going the way we want them to go, Patsy, that's the time we really need to pay attention and say, hey, is God leading me to a place that I need to be to bring someone into the kingdom of God? And then two weeks ago, we looked at God doesn't fit in a box. Sometimes we'd like to say, oh, this is a safe God, and we're going to put him right here. 
And this is how he operates. But then when we look at the book of Acts, God doesn't fit in a box, does he? And Paul reminds us that he can do things, better things, greater things than we have ever even imagined. Well, we're in chapters 11 and 15. Notice it doesn't say chapter 11 through 15. It says 11 and 15. So I sometime may go back and look at 12, 13, and 14. But for this morning's study, I'd like for you to turn over starting with Acts chapter 11. Now this is a write notes, keep notes, gloss in the text, highlight your Bible sermon series. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back on a table. They are free for your use. You just pick one up. If you don't have one, make it your own. If you don't have one this morning, uh, there are there are Bibles in the back of the pew. So please open up a Bible. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then I know you're with me this morning because you're following right along. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and very good. So let's turn over to Acts 11, and that's where we'll start our story this morning. I made a promise to you to talk a little bit about geography and history uh, each uh, each. Sunday. And some of you may be thinking, well, Keith, why a little history and why geography every Sunday morning? Is that really important? And I would argue that it is important because, Robert, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Who was this book written to? Who did Luke write this book to? Who? Theophilus. Are you, how many Theophiluses do we have this morning? Okay, so it's important to know where and what was going on in these people's lives so we can understand what Holy Scripture is trying to say to us. The more we know about their geography and their history and their culture, the more meaningful the inspired word is to us, right? So, Geography. You've got a little map. I'd like for you to fill in the blanks on this map. We'll start in Caesarea, okay? Now, we studied Caesarea two weeks ago. Caesarea is where uh, Peter talked to Cornelius and saved all of Cornelius' household. They all came to Christ. Remember that story? So that, we start our story in Caesarea, and then our story is going to move to Jerusalem, and then it's going to go back up and start in, in 15. It's going to start in Antioch of Syria, just on the other side of Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia, whoops, learn how to run this thing. Wrong button. Here we go. And Antioch and Jerusalem. All right. So Phoenicia is an area. Samaria is an area. And Judea is an area. Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Antioch are all cities. Now, if you're reading through Acts, you might get confused because Paul talks about being in Iconium, and then just like a day later, he is in, he is in Antioch. Well, there's two Antiochs, all right, if that's ever thrown you off. There is Antioch of Pisidia, which is 130 miles north of the coast, and so Antioch and Pisidia would be up here. And, and Paul's been up there. And if you're reading those chapters, don't let that throw you off, okay? He's been up there, and now he's come down to Antioch of Syria. 
So let's talk a little bit about Antioch of Syria. It was, when it was under the Greek uh, kings, it was the capital of Syria, the first city of the east, it was called, on the Orontes, Orontes River. Now, they called it the first city of the east because if you're coming from the far east into, into the Mediterranean, into uh, Asia Minor, this is where the trade routes were. And you, you would land here, and all the treasures that were coming out of the far east would be set off here. It was not a big food trade route, but it was a big trade route for gold, uh, for silk and fine linen, for jewelry, uh, uh, for spices that were coming out of the Far East. And so this made this a critical, very wealthy trade area. It ranked third after Rome and Alexandria in the importance of cities of the Roman Empire. In 64 BC, Pompey made the city the capital over the Roman province of Syria. By A.D. 165, it was the third largest city of the empire. Now, what's the capital of Syria today? Damascus, okay? Cain and I expected that to come blaring out of your mouth, Mr. Capital King. It had a quarter of a million people in it at this time. It's mentioned 17 times in Acts alone, 19 times in the New Testament. 21 times the word Antioch is, is mentioned, but two of those times it's talking about Antioch of Pisidia, way up north in Turkey, what is now today Turkey. All right. It is known for, best known for, where Christians were first called Christians. The way. Before this, it was called the way. Okay? Or the Nazarene sect. But now, it's being called, we're being called Christians. And i got to tell you, we wear that as a badge. And I think they probably did too. But when that first came out, Christians was probably a derogatory term. They were trying probably to say, oh, those Christians. And now we wear it as a badge. All right. Here is a picture of St. Peter's Church in Antioch. Now, this is really just a grotto built into the side of a mountain, and this is claimed to be one of the places that Peter preached in Antioch. Now, we really don't know for sure, Jeremiah, if this was the place that Peter preached in, but we do know that Peter did preach there, and in Galatians 2 and 11, it tells us that Peter was in Antioch and spent quite a bit of time there. Slow drift. What do you mean by slow drift, Keith? Well, slow drift happens when we give our attention to our form and our patterns and the inferior matters until we drift away from the weightier matters of Christianity. So let's start with our story. All right. The apostles... And the believers through Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So Peter went to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. 
you see what's happened here? Peter's broken out of the traditional thing of just speaking to the Jews, and now, like a kid being called to the office, Peter, can you please come back to Jerusalem? And so he goes all the way back to Jerusalem, and he retells his story, and I paraphrase. He's sleeping on top of, he's hungry and sleeping on top of the roof down in Joppa. He falls asleep. A sheet comes down. The Lord says, kill and eat. Peter says, surely not I, Lord. Then the Lord says, do not call anything impure that God has made. It has to happen three times because Peter's a bonehead. Then he hears a knock on the door. The guys, from Caesarea, or the guys from Caesarea have come, and he thinks, who's that and what do they want? And the Holy Spirit says, hey, you need to go with them, whatever they say. He invites them to their home. They go to the home. He takes along six brothers because, you know, there's strength in numbers, Mary, and if I'm going to get in trouble for going into a Gentile's home, I want some witnesses who can testify with me. So they go with me. And so I go there, and when I get there, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in the way of God? Who could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. If there's one thing that the apostles have learned is not to argue with God. God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, right? And so when Peter and these six other guys come back and say, this is what happened, the apostles are like, thumbs up. The Spirit goes and does what he wants to do, how he wants to do it. And if that's how he did it, we're good. And Peter say, man, I'm not going to get in the way of God. All right, now turn your Bibles over to chapter 15. Now, Peter, or excuse me, Paul has been up in Iconium and in, into what's called Asia Minor, what we call today as, as Turkey, and he's been spreading the gospel, okay? And he's coming back down out of the north, and he's coming alongside the Mediterranean, and, and he comes to Antioch, and he's preaching in Antioch, okay? Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. And we're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debated with them. The word dispute there really can be, uh, it's a word closely uh, with our word uh, riot. Okay, this was a big deal to them. They were very upset about this. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question, about how you have to be circumcised. Now, what I want to do is give you a small illustration. Have you ever done this? And maybe, maybe not so much today, but it used to happen a lot, okay? So you walk in a store, 
And Mary, you get in the store, and you walk in, and you're looking for tires. And you walk in, and it says, for sale, $25 a tire. And Rick, you get excited about the deal because that's a good price on a tire. So you walk over, and you stick your finger into the tread, and you think, that's pretty good tread. Those look like good tires. I'd like to have those tires. But along the way, when you get up to the counter and you say, hey, I'd like four of those tires for 100 bucks. I want to reset my car. And the guy behind the counter says, oh, that's great. Did you want them mounted? That's $7.50. And did you want them balanced? That's $15.25. And oh, by the way, would you like a valve stem on it after we mount it for you and balance it? Yeah, that's $4.50. And then he says, how about we give you a road hazard warranty for $12.75? Robert, what looked to be a really great deal is going down the tubes quickly, isn't it? Because now that on-sale tire is now just a tire for $66. And what I thought I was going to get for $100, now it's going to cost me $264. Do you see the add-ons? Now that has become a barrier because Anna only gave me $110 to buy the tires. Now all these little add-ons have become a barrier to me becoming the new owner of four new tires. And that's what the Jews are doing. They're adding on as they go. They're trying to add on mosaical law. They say, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you can't be saved. What they're saying is, is unless you follow the 613 laws that we've put out there, you're out. You're not in. And Paul is preaching repentance and baptism and grace and faithfulness. And the Jews are preaching 613 laws, which included circumcision. So, Jacob, you know what that means. The conversion class is a bunch of ladies and young boys, right? Some of you will get that on the way home. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out to you that really bugs me about the Greek, we've got this better than the Greeks do, okay? In English, as I say, I'm going to Missouri, I go what? I go up to Missouri, right? And if I'm going to go down, if I'm going to Louisiana, I'm going down to Louisiana. Greek doesn't work that way, okay? When it says they're going down, it just means that they're going, okay? Because from Caesarea to or excuse me, from Antioch to Jerusalem is a long way south. But these guys are smart. They're not just taking Saul and Barnabas's word for it. They want to dig deeper. So they send these men to Jerusalem to talk about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, whom they reported everything God had done through them. And things are looking marvelous, right? Up to verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. What? Now these people who put Christ on the cross are now believing. They've come along and they've said, oh, Christ is the Son of God and we will follow. But 
the Gentiles must be circumcised, and they're required to keep the law of Moses. you got to add on. They just kept tacking things on, and now it's becoming a barrier. And the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, key point here, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressing them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for, the purify, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent. Must have must have made an impression, didn't it? They're practicing being good listeners. As they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. So they're listening. They're hearing Paul and Barnabas as they witness what Christ is doing out in the Asia Minor. And then they finish. And then the brother of Christ, James, steps up and says, Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, he's Simon Peter, same name. One's just Arabic and one's Latin. So he's, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written. And then James starts to break into the book of Amos, chapter 9, on how God has always intended to bring the Gentiles into his family, to save the Gentiles. Verse 19 It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't make it difficult. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues of every, in every Sabbath. What he's saying there in the end is... We've been teaching that this is going to eventually make it to the Gentiles. Prophecy's been telling us that it's going to come to the Gentiles. Why aren't we listening to that? Okay? Now, some of this other is a little bit confusing. Why about the idols and the blood and, and, and strangled animals and sexual immorality? I mean, because if you're going to boil, if you're going to boil Christianity down to a short letter to send somebody, my letter would say, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, 
and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if you're going to boil it down, David, wouldn't your letter at least include that? But that's not what he includes here. Why? Well, the best I can tell in all the research that I've done is that these are polytheistic people. These are people who have dealt with many gods all their life. And James in the church is trying to say, no, there's one God. You have to choose one God. You can't keep worshiping these idols. You can't keep worshiping these pagan gods. You've got to make a whole commitment. This Christ thing, this following Yahweh, is not like these other gods. This is the one true God, and you've got to put all that other idol worship behind you. And the second reason I think it's a big thing to them is that this idol worship that we see here is really keeping people from fellowshipping with one another. The Jews weren't going to have anything to do with the Gentiles if they were doing these things. So what's really important to James is they understand they've got to commit to one God and that they also have to stop doing these things so they can start fellowshipping one with another. Because like we said, loving God, having no other idols before you, loving Him with all your mind, your heart, and your soul, and loving your neighbor, that's really important. And so James is trying to clear the way for that. The apostles and the elders, the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. i got to tell you, this is smart. Again, we see transparency. This is not a backroom decision made by a few men who are, the, who are the ultimate leaders of the church. This is completely transparent, and the whole church is included. Men, women, children, everyone in that church is included in making this decision, and they all find it acceptable, Jack. And then they're smart enough to send two other guys with Paul and Barnabas. Well, why? Well, because Paul and Barnabas are smart. They could have gone down to Jerusalem, hung out for a few days, written a letter themselves, and gone back up to Antioch and said, see, here we're right. But they didn't. They took men along to say, no, this letter comes from the church. When you're digging and you're trying to do research, it's important that you understand, is it authentic? Some lessons to learn. This is an oil rig that has become shipwrecked on the Scot uh, Scotland's Western Isles. You see, this 220,000 ton platform is very resistance, resistant against vertical waves, against vertical pressure and but it has a problem, Mike, with slow drift. You see, it can deal with the really dynamic winds hitting it and the waves hitting it and setting in the sun for years at a time. But what it has problems with is sitting out in the ocean and dealing with the small, slow tide, Rick, that slowly pushes it away because everything is moving around it 
And as everything moves around it, it starts to slide over a little bit and press more and more against the moorings. And if they're not careful, if, if they don't keep constantly adjusting these things out at sea, it puts so much pressure, David, on the moorings that are supposed to anchor it down that it breaks free. And this one has shipwrecked. Our joy can be stolen. Our Christianity can be shipwrecked. And our religion taken from us when we get into the slow drift away from the gospel and the gospel of grace. Slow drift. Does it happen in your life? Number one. Resist the drift from insiders versus outsiders. The tighter we become as a church, the greater the potential to drift into exclusiveness, into looking who's in and who is out. The mentality becomes that you're so loyal to your church sometimes that you forget to be loyal to the lost, right? You, you start looking at people who are in and who are out and starting to try to be exclusive. Number two, resist the drift away from grace to truth only. As we study the Bible, we began, we began to drift toward truth only and we forget about grace. And we need to fight that drift Jesus, John tells us that Jesus was full of truth and he's balanced, David. But if we're not careful, we'll become one of those churches who becomes a truth church and becomes so en engorged with the truth that we forget about grace. And our hearts become more concerned about truth than it does soft and tender for those who are lost. We need to be perfectly balanced of truth and grace. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. That needs to be in our attitude, folks, day to day. Amen? We need to remember that mercy triumphs over judgment. Number three, keep the discussion going. This whole issue started in a debate, and this whole issue is fixed with meaningful discussion, right? Remember this verse? The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, and he starts addressing them. But what happens? They're in much discussion. Can I tell you that I think that one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in the last 50 years of the churches of Christ is we have entered into debates to win debates. And we won the debates, okay? We know Scripture. We won the debates, but we won the debates and lost people's conversation. We won the debates but we didn't stay in conversation with people. And so instead of 
winning the debate so we could talk with them longer in conversation, we ran them away. This morning, I want you to remember it's key. While you're talking about doctrine, while you're talking about your Christianity, the key is to keep them in the discussion as long as possible. Because what does it matter if you win the debate and you lose their souls? What good is it to win a debate if you lose your relationship with them and can't draw them any closer to Christ? Stay in the conversation. Keep it going. Number four, God knows man's hearts. We are lousy judges of motive. Did you hear what I said? We are lousy judges of motive. We shouldn't be trying to judge motives. God knows their hearts. Peter says, God, who knows the heart. Peter says, God, who knows the heart. Do you think just for a moment that when he says this, his mind goes back to a time where he walked along the ocean beside the Sea of Galilee with Christ, and Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And he says, yeah, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, Lord, you know you love me. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know. You know my heart. Peter tells this crowd, God knows the heart and he's going to purify their heart by their faith who knows their faith God Johnny I can know a lot of things about you man but I can't know your faith and I can't know your motive I don't know what motivates you I think that it's your love for Marilyn and your kids and your love for the Lord but really you could be fooling me but God knows Right, Lenora? God knows our hearts. Number five, we should not make coming to God difficult. Remember the illustration back about the tire? James says, This is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Got to find a free pocket. Because you see, as we add to, as we add to the list of things, as we add to the gospel, as we tack on things to the gospel, they start to become barriers, right? And the more things I add on, the more barriers. Is that upside down? Turn it around. I can't tell you how many times I've worked on this before this, and it always worked. And as we add to... Our Christianity, as we add things onto our Christianity, they become barriers, right? And they keep people from coming to Christ. And the more that I throw out there, the more 
that they become a barrier. And before long, I, I can't really even communicate with you anymore about Christ because all you see are these other barriers that I think good Christians ought to do or ought not to do. And so now I can't even reach you for Christ. And it's now putting up a barrier between people being saved and knowing Christ. So the question is this morning, are you building bridges or are you building barriers to Christ? Are you adding on to the price of Christianity to the point that people see it as a barrier? Or are you preaching the gospel of grace so people might know a loving Savior and come to eternal life? I hope that we are a church. Please be a church full of truth and grace that doesn't make it difficult for people to come to Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's all stand, please.